0: I did ask in the chat, but I'll ask it again, if you'd like to let me know, let us know where you're tuning in from today, always nice to get a sense of the geographic spread of the Sankar. I see they're all coming to me as direct messages. Can we open up the chat, Liana, um, so everybody can see where everybody else is coming? But I'll read it anyway. Vancouver, Berkeley, Santa Monica, San Jose. There's a lot from the Bay Area. Oakland, Casper. Yeah, mostly Bay Area tonight. Chicago. Thompson, Washington and if you can turn your video on at least for the beginning just so we can put names to faces and faces to names and from Boise Utah. especially as a teacher, but also I think for as a Sangha, nice to see faces. It also makes us a little more accountable. You know, for our videos off, you know, we feel like we can, you know, clean the windows and, you know, do the dishes and, you know, whatever it is we're snacking on, popcorn. And when um, our videos I are mean, just a little more accountable and it's a bit more like, um, We're in the, (laughs) we're in the space. (laughs) So the bird song is uh, nightingales singing, and there's a reason why we're hearing nightingales. Not that nightingales are native or indigenous to California, but they're indigenous to my home country, England, where they're currently uh nesting it's very loud hmm, okay how's that how's that sound i turned it down Better. so um maybe the the speaker is playing close to my mic i'm not sure where my mic is on this laptop um so I'll, I'll explain later why I'm playing the nightingale, but it is spring, and um, I am. It is refresh from Earth Day, but for me, every day is Earth Day, and so I'm going to. And that's actually the title of this talk that I'm going to give later: is "Every Day is Earth Day," because why not? Because um, it's kind of crazy that it's not every day. <laughs> Because without Earth, and without all the beings of Earth, and the life of Earth, and the abundance of Earth, we would not be here. We would be a hard rock floating through space, except without life on it. So, um, anyhow. And I was listening to a dear friend of mine, Sam Lee, who is an English... Uh, bard in the old-fashioned meaning of the term. Bard is a folk singer and a collector and, and storyteller and musician. And, and um, he reinvigorated a tradition that started by a famous female cellist in the the turn of the last century um, where um, she lived in in the south of England and um, every spring in the south of England at least back then, less so now um, the migrating, returning migrating Nightingales come to nest in in England and France, Southern England, and they have the most glorious song. They have the, the, as far as I know, the widest range of, uh, song, up to 1500 sounds and several hundred songs. And, um, the exquisite bird and, uh, this cellist, whose name I can't remember at this moment, um, uh, she convinced the BBC uh, radio, in, in the, in the, I think in the twenties, 1920s, to um, bring their very cumbersome recording equipment outside so they could record her live playing a duet uh, with her on the cello and the nightingale birds. And the nightingale birds, as the name suggests, only sing at night. They start singing about midnight. And they sing till the morning. And so they, so the BBC agreed. And they, they reeled a mile of cable from the nearest, I'm not sure what, to her, to her where she was in the forest. And she played this duet, which became, it was the first, <laughs> probably the first thing ever to go viral. Uh, it got millions of listens. The, the BBC got fifty thousand letters from around the world saying how amazing, and so it was repeated every year. I think it's a great story, um, turning people onto the beauty of song and birds. And, and now, sadly, the um, due to changing agricultural patterns in in North Saharan Africa, where the birds winter, where were they? Birds, um, it's there breeding grounds not breeding grounds they're they're wintering grounds um the very few make it now back to england it's the numbers have dwindled probably by 95 percent um and uh, the ecologists think think that in 30 years they won't be singing anymore in england um and so we are listening to um a species at least in from an england perspective um That is uh, a diminishing resource, diminishing jewel. And that's true of many of our situation, uh, ecologically speaking. Anyway, I'll talk a little more about that uh, uh, after we sit. Um, So we'll sit together. And if you don't like the sound of the bird, you can turn the volume off. And if you like the sound of the bird, you can turn your volume up. And um, I'm not going to say too much during the meditation. I'll give a little guidance, but not too much. I'm actually suffering from a little extreme hypoglycemia, which I've not been able to uh, remedy. Normally I can remedy it, but it's, um, it's having a bit of a lingering tail. So um, I'm needing to sit quietly, perhaps as much as you are. So um, So let's sit together.
1: Thank you. So
0: taking your meditation seat and establishing mindful awareness here in the present. And as you attune to this moment, noticing what's calling, alluring attention into the present moment, what allows you to attune, connect with what's here. Sensing the immediacy of body, physical experience, sitting, sensing, breathing. noticing what supports a continuity of attention, perhaps orienting to breathing, simplicity of sensations, of breath, field of sensation in the body, coming and going. Soundscape, silence between sounds. I'm noticing when attention gets absorbed, drawn into thinking, imagery, memory, speculation. And coming back, abiding in awareness and present, sitting, sensing, breathing, hearing. abiding in this knowing quality of awareness. It's naturally present here, awake.
1: Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: In the last minute or so of the practice, wherever you are, no matter how far the attention may have roamed, the is right here. Awareness, present to whatever's here in this moment this breath, the sound, this body. You bring the practice to a close. Notice noticing what's here, noticing the influence of your sitting, and the influence of how your attention, mind, practices, is. Being kind with and forgiving with. Ways the mind may be spacing out, wondering, falling asleep, and then waking up over and over. Groundhog Day, and now practice. So we'll take about a five minute break if you. Want I wish to share in the chat, just how your meditation was, we can reopen up the chat again. So feel free to take care of yourself, take a break, stretch, get some water, adjust yourself, and then we'll come back for some reflections about the earth and our relationship to the earth. Hi hey friends, so, um, welcome back. So, as I said, I'd like to share some reflections. Continuing from the celebration of Earth Day on Saturday, I'm wondering how many of you are celebrating Earth Day this weekend. Did you raise your hand? Anybody aware of Earth Day, celebrating Earth Day, doing something in honor of Earth Day? Okay, good. Yeah. Celebrating ourselves, in a way. <clears throat> celebrating. Parts of our nature. I like that some of you have an earth, uh, an earth, background. I should put one on myself. I was going to plan to be sitting outside, but not feeling well, so I chose not to do that. Hence the birds. Let me know if the birds are a problem. I know some of you found the birds a little distracting. Um, so I was thinking about a um, a line from the Buddha um, where he says um, in someone was asking him about why he goes to the forest. And he said, um, I go to the woods um, because it's a pleasant abiding here and now. And out out of compassion for future generations that they may follow my example. But they may follow my example and go in the woods, go meditate in the woods, go take their whatever their practice is out into nature. Of course, most people back when he was living 2,600 years ago were mostly outside, um, unlike where we are today. I was at Spirit Rock actually celebrating Earth Day for our ceremony. Was anybody there? Just wave your hands if some of you were tuning in. Um, the irony for me when we were celebrating Earth Day was that we were inside. Um, I was, a kind of a, it was always partly doing that because we had a lot of people tuning in on Zoom. There's a certain kind of irony for me that we were indoors, as we often are. You know, we're becoming an indoor species. And we are habituated to being indoors, mostly, most of us. And therein lies our problem, or one of our problems. (laughs) Because we, most of us, you know, we're not an agrarian culture anymore or a technological culture. And so we don't live close to the natural world, most of us. Some of you might have the good fortune of living in the country or in the woods. Maybe some of you have work that takes you outside, landscaping, But mostly not. I bet if we did a poll here of about the hundred people who are tuning in today, I bet less than five percent of you your work is outdoors. Even my work, you know, most of my work is I'm a nature meditation teacher. I teach awake in the wild retreats, programs, and practices and teacher trainings and that that work does take me outside. But like every work that we do these days, also requires a lot of administrative work and desk work and computer work and all of that. And I endeavor to take my laptop outside and my calls outside and my Zoom meetings outside. And just to increase that exposure, even if it's into my little garden or to my balcony. Or, and I'll speak more about why I do that, but you may try doing that yourselves if you have the luxury of being able to have flexibility around that. But as I mentioned earlier, it's it's odd that we have an Earth Day. I imagine if we discussed that with many indigenous cultures, people living more closer to and in harmony with the land, they might think it's kind of weird. <laughs> so we have an Earth Day. But... Better Earth, One Earth Day than No Earth Day. Earth Day began in 1970 because the Earth was not being prominently featured in political discourse and society and media in general, and was you know, the growing awareness of nature being um, beleaguered or under threat and experiencing the, the, the impact of that over these last 50 years. But the beautiful thing about Earth Day and, and celebrating that is we remember just as we might remember someone's birthday, we remember their goodness, or their good qualities, or what they mean to us. And so, with Earth Day, perhaps we take a moment to remember, to feel grateful, to remind ourselves of what an amazing, mysterious, intelligent, beautiful, wondrous, awe inspiring planet we live on. I'm frankly still trying to fathom out why anyone would think about wanting to set up a colony on Mars. (laughs) A dry, cold, dusty planet. (laughs) Just bizarre. When we live on in, in, in an earth that's staggeringly beautiful and fecund and rich with with you know billions, millions, and millions of species and trillions of beings and three trillion trees and more plants and grasses and flowers and seasons and springtime. Okay? So for most of you. In the Northern Hemisphere, we're in spring. I just took a walk. been walking a lot here in Northern California because we've had so much beautiful rain this winter and the land is, is fertile with life, with green hillsides and staggeringly beautiful flowering flowers adorning the hillsides. So much beauty, so much delight. And so sometimes we need to be reminded of that. I'm not sure that was true for the Buddha, you know. The Buddha must have had some kind of English gene, because I think his some of his lines are the the master of understatement. I go to the woods because it's a pleasant abiding here and now. <laughs> it's jolly good. It's quite pleasant. <laughs> you know, I'm sure in 2,600 years ago, in the forests of northern India, it was just teeming with life. Teeming with birds, teeming with sound, and quite beautiful. And then sometimes we go outside and um, we listen to the news or we track the data and we're reminded of how things are not so well. With the world, and with the earth, and with species, and with ecosystems, and, and we're aware of how badly the earth, and the oceans, and the rivers, and the forests are being treated, and you know, we're we're suffering from the legacy of thinking for some hundreds of years that the earth somehow is separate from us or is limitless in its resource or that we've othered it so much that um, we treat it like a thing, like an inanimate object for our use, resource and and so, and the more urbanized, mechanized, technologicalized, if that's a word, um, we become, the more separate we feel from, from the earth. And yet we know from science, from biology, from our own perhaps. Um, visceral experience, we know we're not separate. We know the earth is not a thing or an other, but it's part of who we are. We are the earth. We are of the earth. And even our DNA is shared so much, drawn so much from innumerable life forms. Chimpanzees, almost identical DNA to chimpanzees. Even banana slugs, we share 70% of our DNA with the banana slugs. The next time you're in the dank forest and you see a banana slug, you go, oh, it's my long lost cousin, my distant relative, my ancestors. You know, we share 50% of our DNA with trees, been around for a few hundred million years. 44% with bees, 60% with bananas, it's kind of wild, it seems so different, it seems so other. But if we think, if we cease to other the, the earth and species, and we realize actually, if we go back long enough, we're all we're all kin. I was listening to a talk <clears throat> from I was an interview actually with Lila June who's a Native American teacher um, and biologist and <clears throat> activist. And she used this word kincentricity, kincentricity or kincentric of realizing how our kin uh, extends in a way to all life. So when I began to think about that, I began to think, oh, our Sangha, Sangha, which is community, is whoever's here, whoever's in our, where we think of as in our community. But our Sangha, my Sangha, is also uh, oak trees, and dragonflies, and red-tailed hawks, and coastal fog, and our benefactors, we talk about benefactors, usually teachers, but there are also forests that allow us to breathe in grasslands, and the plant kingdom that allow us food, and coral reefs. And our t- teachers are many, coyote, hawk, salamander, snail, flowering jasmine. And our ancestors breathed with gills and walked with hooves and flew with feathers. So I'd like to share um, part of a poem uh, from Fred Lamotte, who's a bit of an earth mystic and former um, um priest of some sort, I believe. Uh, it's called Ancestry, Some of you might know this poem. I'll just share parts of it. He says, my DNA results just came in. Just as I suspected, my great-great-grandfather was a monarch butterfly. Much of who I am is still wriggling under a stone. I am part lava, part hummingbird too. There is dinosaur tar in my bone marrow. My golden hair sprang out of a meadow in Palestine. Genghis Khan is my fourth cousin, but I didn't get his dimples. My uncle is a mastodon. There are traces of white people in my saliva. 3.7 billion years I swirled in hydrogen dust, dreaming of a planet, overgrown. Overgrown. More recently, say 60,000 BC, I walked on hairy paws across a land bridge joining Sweden to Botswana. I can no longer hide my heritage of raindrops and cougar scat. My mud was molded with your grandmother's tears. Admit it, you have wings vast and crystal. You have sweat dark and salty. You have secrets silently singing in your blood. Don't pretend that earth is not one family. Don't pretend we never hung from the same branch. Don't pretend we do not ripen on each other's breath. Don't, don't pretend we didn't come here to forgive. So, the poem is Ancestry by Fred Lamott. And so I love that, just so seeing the, who is part of our wider family. So I was reflecting again, as I was thinking about Earth Day this weekend, and, um, like called to mind my friend and colleague, and some of you will know, Wes Niska, wonderful Dharma teacher, stand-up comic, and he talks about realizing that we're Earthlings first and foremost, not humans, Earthlings. To we need to identify ourselves properly. And I was thinking, well, it's another way of saying that is we need to reclaim our Homo Gaian nature. Our Homo, we're Homo Gaians, not Homo sapiens. We're Homo Gaians. We're Homo earthlings. Gaia is a word for the earth, for living system, goddess of the earth. So, what would it mean to be a Homo Gaian? Of the earth, not on the earth part of the earth earth's moving surface expressing itself walking on itself knowing itself so so much of dharma teaching is looking at identity and understanding and reflecting on who are we what are we what are we made of and Understanding our earth nature, earthling nature, Gaian nature, interconnected nature, is part of understanding who we are. What our true nature is, is not separate from nature. So this can sound and may feel, you know, a little bit abstract. Like, oh, well, it's a nice idea. Sounds interesting. But it doesn't really come to life until we actually have a little more visceral, sensory, experiential contact, connection, immersion in nature. And of course, some would say, well, everything's nature, including the computer I'm looking at and you're looking at, phone, maybe. But I think often, generally, we refer to nature as um, well, the natural world as in contrast to the human constructed world that is, is still in its more organic form. And so to make what I'm speaking about um, experiential, then we need to get outside. We need to get outside of our buildings, our homes, our offices, our cars, our malls, or wherever it is that we hold ourselves up and have more intimacy with the elements, more connection, more visceral contact, sensory contact. Because otherwise it's just a concept just an idea. And so that is my main mantra when I teach people who know me know this mantra. My mantra is my closing words often. The Buddha's closing words when he would give a talk was, there are trees and there are the roots of trees, go sit there lest you regret it later. My mantra is shorter than that. Go outside, go outside, go outside, go outside. Wherever it is, wherever you are, in the city, in your garden, on the deck, into your, into your neighborhood, into a park, or if you're luckier, into the forest or by the water or and begin to feel into your more than, you know, when we step outside, we step into, uh, into relationship with the more than human world. Even in the city, the nature elements are often more, can be more prominent if we pay attention to the air element, to the sky, to the light, to the sun, to the breeze, to the rain, to the wind, the trees that grow, on the sidewalk. And so, but more so when we go out into a place that's been less adulterated, um, altered. And then we can begin to feel into something older than ourselves, and we feel into the um, older, deeper dimension of our nature. Sometimes, mostly when I go outside, I always feel like I'm coming home. I leave my home to feel like I'm going home. Because my home is not my house, my address. My home is, is, is outside, with trees, with the sky, with the sound of birds, with wind, with rain. With the grass under my feet that I feel at home. When I'm indoors I can often feel it alienated or separate or distance. Can I kind of feel a longing longing for the beloved. Anybody else feel that?
1: No.
0: So when we go outside, the second thing that happens, aside from opening up our senses and sense of awareness to a sensory world, is we we realize we come we realize we come into the awareness of our of our connection, our deep relationship, our intertwined, interdependent nature. Right? That we don't exist. As an island, we're not independent, we're not rugged individuals. You might be rugged, but you're not a separate individual. You might have skin boundary, seeming boundary, but we're profoundly in relationship with life. And we feel that more when we go outside when we, when we go outside, even if it's just opening the window and we take a, we take an inhale. And we can smell maybe the the smell of spring or the smell of rain or the smell of uh, flowers blossoming or the whatever the breeze is blowing in. And we take in that the freshness of oxygen that's more tangible. When we go outside, in contrast to the air in our homes, which is relatively stale, we go outside and we feel the freshness of the air. And we're breathing in, the oxygen released. You know, I open this window here to my left. I have a huge redwood tree and a huge oak tree who are emanating oxygen. And I'm sure when I open that window, some of the oxygen that's released from their leaves is probably in the needles is making its way into my, into my lungs. When I breathe out, when I exhale carbon dioxide, maybe some sliver of that makes, it way, makes its way into the, the pores of the leaves, the needles here or maybe it settles down onto the, the uh, juniper tree down below or grasses or maybe that exhale gets breathed in partly by the birds that are singing in the trees or the squirrel that's nesting up in the tree and so we're literally breathing with life we're breathing with forests we're breathing with the abundant um, grasses of springtime. And then when we walk, when we walk on the earth, especially walking on the grass or soil, beach, or rocks, we feel the the earth's surface. I was talking to Paul Hawken the other day is a great environmentalist and he says when we walk on the earth we need to realize we're walking on the roof of the world because there's way more life underground than there is above ground hard to grok that with our eyes because it seems like more life above ground but more life forms microorganisms mycelium networks and a huge amount of microorganisms at work, and so we might feel like, oh, I'm walking on the skin of the earth, I'm walking on part of myself. And then what's very important as we go outside, and something I've been teaching a lot about recently on my retreats, is as part of that relationship, we, we begin, to, as we cultivate a more sensitive awareness outside in nature, we certainly have this awareness around humans, but not with the natural world generally, where we um, can begin to realize that we are always in relationship and we don't just go outside, say, for a walk in the park or the woods to know it, which we do, to experience it, to see it, to look at it, to enjoy it. But we also can realize that we are also being known. We are also not just seeing, but being seen. We're not just hearing, but we're being heard. We're not just smelling, but we're being smelt. Not just sensing, but we're being sensed. By a whole array of, of, of beings, the birds when we walk, and very tracking our presence, change their songs and their calls when you walk through a meadow. The beings in the ground, the beetles, ants, snakes, gophers, very much feeling our vibration, plants as we, we tre- tread on them, and um, the animals that orient through scent, the coyotes and foxes and other animals, aware of our smell as we walk through the forest or the uh, the meadow. I was uh, biking today in the headlands here, and and I can be sure that the fox that I came across was smelling me way before he saw me come around the corner and was already alert to my uh, approach and darted off. Um... And so it's an interesting thing to to begin to feel into how we always, to, to shift the frame of reference from me as the sensate thing being, experiencing the world around me. How is the world around me experiencing this organism? How am I being seen? How am I being known? How am I being felt? How am I being sensed? How am I being smelt? I'm being perceived as part of nature, part of the landscape. There's a beautiful line from David Wagner in a poem he has called Lost. And it's a poem based on some Native American teachings. And he says at the end of the poem, he says, stand still, stand still. The forest. And he's talking to someone in the forest. He's speaking from the forest. He says, "Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let us find you. Or you go out into your garden. Stand still. The plants in your garden know where you are. They. You must let them find you. you. Go along. Wherever it is." into your balcony, stand still, the birds around you, above you, know where you are, you must let them find you. So it's a beautiful thing to realize, oh, I'm not just knowing, but I'm being known. And then the third thing that happens when we go outside, so we become we become aware, sensorily, we, be, we sense into our reciprocal relationships, And then the third thing is we also, uh, we open our hearts. We open our hearts to beauty, to love, to joy, to wonder, to um, many, many ways that our hearts touched, that we fall in love with so many things, so many beings. Right now, where I am, the, the California poppies are just they're having a fiesta, and they're just littering the hillsides with this staggeringly bright gold, golden orange. And they're just gaily you know, swaying in the breeze and shining their glory. And, and it's, it's as hard not to be touched, not to be moved, not to fall in love with poppies with uh, the blossoming trees, the oaks that, are, that have their sort of draping blossoms, and uh, uh, just the whole plethora of wildflowers, the, the paintbrushes starting to come out, and the oxalis, and uh, the lupins, and just this delight. And so we start to feel a lot of heart-opening and we see the, the barn swallows returning from their migration, or the young um, fawns being born, just the beautiful signs of spring. And it's, and it's a lovely thing to feel our heart open, to be moved. Really. Our hearts tend to get so easily shut down. With stress, with busyness, with the suffering of the world and ourselves. And so it's important to also make time for the ways that we may feel joy or delight. Delight. This line from poet Jack Gilbert, who says, We can do without pleasure but not delight. We can do without pleasure but not delight. We must risk delight in the ruthless furnace of the world, and then not, not only do we feel love, but again, in this in this spirit of reciprocity, we also can perhaps feel how nature is loving us, giving to us food, air, water, beauty, abundance. And we might feel at times like, oh, we, like when I walk into the redwood forest here, which I do frequently in my in Valley, and I can feel this lovely sort of welcoming benevolence from trees, certain trees. So, call it love. Um, benevolence feels like the, the right word to me, different qualities of. Receiving some kind of welcoming, some kind of warmth. Uh, Benedictine monk, I think it was Benedictine, St. Francis of Assisi, who was a great nature lover, mystic. He he once wrote, uh, after going out in the fields, he says, um, Such love does the sky now pull, Whenever I stand in a field, I have to wring out the light when I get home. Such love does the sky now pour out that whenever I stand in a field, I, he gets soaked, he gets saturated in love. And um, perhaps you feel that. And so just sort of bring this full circle, something you might be saying, well, you know, how, what's this got to do with, the, with Earth Day? Or, and for me, how it circles back is that when we go outside, when we f- come into intimate relationship, when we feel a sense of reciprocity, when we feel our hearts open and touched, when we feel the love for, for, for the natural world, um, that's, that becomes the place from which we care. That becomes the place for which we act. Some He says, only when we've truly fallen back in love with the earth will our actions spring from reverence and the insight of our interconnectedness. Only when we've truly fallen back in love with the earth will our actions spring from reverence and the insight of our interconnectedness. So, or in my words, as I like to say in in the teaching, we protect what we love. We protect what we love. If we care for something, if we love something, we're going to care for it, protect it, steward it, fight for it, defend it. And Robert Moore Kimra from her book, I think it's from her book, I'm Braiding Sweetgrass, um, where she's talking about how when we realize that that we're in relationship and we feel not just love, but also love from the earth, she says, knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect, uh, to to, to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. It's that sacred bond that has the power to move. So, so, I'm aware of the time here, and I've been speaking for a while. So, I'm probably going to wrap this up. I had lots more to say, but um, um so you may be thinking about so, uh, how does this talk touch you? How does what I'm saying speak to you? about knowing our nature, going outside, developing a more mindful relationship with the earth, feeling our reciprocity, feeling our hearts open to love, feeling that move us to caring and steward, and to think about how we may engage with that love. So many friends of mine were down at... Wells Fargo this morning protesting the big banks, the three big banks, loaning the tens of billions of dollars to the to, fossil fuel industries. It's one way you may be moved to to protest, maybe to organize it, maybe to to simplify it, maybe to um, being outside more and listening to what the how the earth wants to move through you, to stay informed. To gather with friends. My partner Laurie Schwanbeck has this, this work called Gaia, where inviting people, groups, to come together to gather, to acknowledge what's happening, to inspire uh, engagement, and then to act from that place of in, in, inspiration. So, think about ways that we may take this love um, into the world. How we live, how we act, how we vote, how we breathe, how we shop, how we do anything. Can it be informed by our love of the earth and realizing that the earth and ourselves are not separate? So, of course, we take care of the earth because it's part of who we are. It's family, it's kin, developing kin centricity. Kin centricity, that's a big word. Or we're becoming a homogyan. <laughs> All right, friends, so nice to be with you. Uh, Apologize, my my energy, especially early on, was very whacked out from from an intense dose of hyperglycemia, which sometimes can uh, take one off guard. Um, So I wish you a good evening or a good morning, if you're morning, and maybe tomorrow you can... Get outside into this beautiful world we live in and, and connect with nature and spring and let that um cleanse your heart and soul and uh feel free to share anything in the chat that maybe touched you and i wish you well and uh see you on the dharma trail thanks